70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of Global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hi, my name is Lee Kowei. I'm a teacher at an experimental school in Suchen in Changsu Province, China. KBS World Radio always impresses me with its programs full of positive energy, lively hosts, and active communications with its listeners. The one hour I spend with KBS World Radio has become a crucial part of my day. I stay updated with major news from Korea through KBS World Radio News, Korea Today and Tomorrow, and current affairs in focus. I roam the streets of Seoul through Seoul Calling, read novels by Korean writers through Books on Demand, and listen to Korean traditional music through Sounds of Korea. Last but not least, Magazine K is where KBS World Radio and its listeners can communicate with one another, which adds extra warmth and character to the station and makes me love it more. Happy 70th birthday! Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. It's Tuesday, February 21st. Welcome to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. I'm An Jae-woo. South Korean President Yoon Song-yeol warned of stern action to eradicate illegal labor union activities and practices in the country's construction industry. He emphasized that a nation must not neglect such violence and wrongdoing. More details coming up in news briefing shortly. North Korea's latest provocations are ratcheting up tensions over the Korean peninsula, with joint military drills by South Korea and the United States slated for next month. For our in-depth today, we get a diagnosis of the situation. And on Touch Base in Seoul, we chat with visual artist and environmentalist Natalie Karbyshenko. All that and more on today's edition of Korea's 24. President Yoon Song-yeol highlighted the need to devise measures to deal with illegal union activities and practices in the construction industry. He has ordered the land and labor ministries to work with the prosecution and police to crack down on such actions. For more on this story and other headlines from today, I'm joined by KBS World Radio News Editor Daniel Choi. Daniel, it's always nice to have you. Always great to be with you, Joe. All right. So, President Yoon has been focusing on measures to deal with what he calls systematic illegalities by unions in the construction sector. What is the latest? Well, presiding over a cabinet meeting on Tuesday, he said militant labor unions in the construction industry continues to engage in various unlawful acts, such as demanding money and valuables, coercion to hire certain people they want, and interrupting ongoing projects. Mm -hmm. Let's hear what he had to say. At construction sites, militant labor unions with vested rights continue to openly engage in illegal practices such as demanding money, forcing hiring, and obstructing building work. This leads to workers losing jobs and poor construction of buildings. 
He said that a nation must not neglect such violence and wrongdoing, pledging a stern response while calling for enhanced transparency and accounting by union as the starting point for labor reform. Okay. Union called on public organizations and the private sector as well to join the government in rooting out illegal activities and to carry out special inspections and crackdowns on illegal activities like that and take stern action according to law. He criticized labor groups that refused to submit their books for inspection when state subsidized union expenditures are Past 150 billion won over the last five years. Plus, the groups also benefited from tax credits. Hmm. Despite a government request earlier that large unions with 1,000 members or more submit their accounting books by February 15th, over 200 unions refused to comply. The president referred to the requirements in what he called advanced countries like the U.S. and Britain, where unions submit accounting reports and bookkeeping, considering it to be the norm. During the cabinet meeting, the land ministry announced plans to seek criminal and civil action against illegal acts by unions at construction sites contracted by the public sector. This includes penalties for forcing employment or demanding money for union activities on charges of blackmail and extortion. Union members who occupy construction sites with machinery will be charged with obstruction of business and unlawful group action will be considered a violation of union laws. Right. And staying with efforts to deal with issues in the construction sector, the prosecution and police will join forces to launch an investigation team to crack down on violence and unlawful acts at construction sites. Please tell us more. That's right. In the press release, the top office said President Yoon was briefed about the plan on Tuesday by Justice Minister Han Dong-un and Police Commissioner General Yoon Hee-gun. Yeah, Land Minister Wan Yee-dong also briefed the president, reporting plans to suspend licenses of tower crane operators if they demand money on top of set wages from construction firms. Mm-hmm. There are also plans to set up a monitoring system and an anonymous call center for whistleblowers. Vice Labor Minister Kwon Gisup proposed plans to seek criminal punishment instead of fines for labor unions' coercion in hiring practices. Since late last year, the land ministry has operated a designated team to respond to violence at construction sites, while the police carried out a 200-day special crackdown. The government seeks to make such monitoring permanent and set up a system to enable immediate response measures to new types of illegal acts. Okay. And meanwhile, in inter-Korean relations, Seoul, Washington, and Tokyo sought a stern, unified response to North Korea's latest missile launches from UN Security Council members on Monday. However, China and Russia stood in the way, claiming such measures are counterproductive. Right. This is not surprising at all. That has been routine so far at the UNSC. Mm -hmm. Uh, During an open session on Monday, the UNSC failed to adopt the resolution on North Korea's latest ICBM launch. The U.S. and Japan condemned the North but didn't get support from China and Russia. Hwang Jung-guk, a South Korean permanent representative to UN, said any attempt to blame both North Korea and the allies for the tensions on the peninsula is illogical, groundless, and unacceptable. America's permanent representative to the UN, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, said uh, she warned that UN's repeated failures to respond emboldens North Korea to conduct destabilizing and escalatory launches without fear of consequences. And she specifically pinned the blame on the failure of two veto-wielding members that repeatedly shut down all efforts at a meaningful response. Hmm. Meanwhile, China and Russia argued that putting more pressure on North Korea would not be constructive. Uh, Last May, the two countries vetoed a U.S.-led push to impose more U.N. sanctions on North Korea. Speaking to reporters on Tuesday, a South Korean foreign ministry official said Seoul is continuing high-level communication even with China and Russia through diplomatic channels. The official added that Seoul will continue to urge Pyongyang to stop provocations and engage in denuclearization talks. Hmm. 
North Korea on Saturday launched an ICBM to show its nuclear weapons can reach the mainland U.S. with properly calibrated aim. The regime also fired two short-range missiles two days later. Right, and we'll talk more about that in today's In-Depth. Moving on to domestic politics, South Korea's Justice Ministry has submitted a request for parliamentary consent to arrest main opposition Democratic Party leader Lee Jae-myung on corruption charges. Well, on Tuesday, the ministry sent the request to Parliament after approval by President Yoon. Last Thursday, the Seoul Central District Prosecutor's Office sought an arrest warrant for E, the first time in the country's modern history that the prosecution has filed to arrest the leader of the main opposition bloc. E was charged with a breach of trust, conflict of interest, corruption, bribery, and concealing profits from a crime while serving as Hongnam mayor. The National Assembly Act prescribes a sitting lawmaker from being arrested while the assembly is in session without parliamentary approval or unless they are caught in the act. As rival parties agreed to convene plenary sessions on Friday and on Monday, the arrest consent motion is expected to be tabled on Friday before being put to a vote on Monday. Requiring a simple majority of present lawmakers to pass, the motion on E's arrest is expected to fail, as the DP has a 169-seat majority in the 300-member chamber. Right. And in international news, near the Turkey and Syrian border, a new earthquake with the magnitude of 6.4 struck the area. This comes after two weeks have passed since the deadly quake devastated the region. Daniel, tell us more. It is unfortunate, but unfortunately it has happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, the forces of nature My seem goodness. to be inflicting a lot of pain in this yeah. particular region. The European Mediterranean Seismological Center said the tremor occurred at around 8.04 p.m. Monday, 16 kilometers west-southwest of Antakya, one of the regions hardest hit by the earlier quakes. Mm-hmm. The depth of the quake was estimated at 10 kilometers. According to Reuters and other media, Turkey's interior ministry announced at least three people died and 213 people were injured in the recent tremor, which was reportedly also felt in Egypt and Lebanon. Authorities in southern Turkey reportedly said the latest quake further damaged buildings in Antakya and people were trapped under the rubble. Uh, The countries are still reeling from a 7.8 magnitude quake that struck the same area on February 6th, killing some 46,000 people. My goodness, I hope this will possibly, hopefully be the last. All right, thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you for having me. I'll talk to you again tomorrow. Great. North Korea launched two short-range ballistic missiles into the EC early Monday, only two days after they fired an intercontinental ballistic missile prompting joint air exercises by the United States and South Korea on Sunday. However, more provocations are expected to come as Pyongyang warned of a strong response to upcoming U.S.-South Korea military drills. To get some expert analysis on the escalating tensions over the Korean Peninsula, we are joined online by Dr. James Kim, Senior Research Fellow and Director of the Center for Regional Studies at the Asan Institute for Policy Studies. Hello, Dr. Kim. Hi, how are you? Great. Okay, so North Korea fired two short-range ballistic missiles towards the EC on Monday, which came a day after South Korea and the United States staged joint air drills involving B-1B bombers in response to the North's intercontinental ballistic missile launch. Now, first off, what did you make of North Korea's latest provocations? What are the reclusive state's intentions? Um, 
So good evening. Um, um, it, to answer that, I think we need to first understand some realities that North Korea has to contend with at this um, at this moment. One is the changing um, situation on the Korean Peninsula with strengthened cooperation uh, between U.S. and South Korea, and maybe even you might add Japan into that mix. And, and we've had uh, because we've had a, a, a trilateral naval exercise last year, and that was the first uh, for all those three countries. And all of the, um, uh, in addition to that, there have been some other um, annual exercises that were um, put on hold by the Moon administration. They're mostly back online. Um, and the U.S. Um, and ROK just recently announced more deployment of uh, strategic assets uh, onto the Korean Peninsula. And, and and part of this uh, is happening because uh, we've had unprecedented number of launches in Tesla last year. But so what's going on there? And if we look back uh, to Kim Jong Un's past statements, uh, like his speech during the seventh session of the 14th uh, Supreme People's Assembly last year, he hinted that um, North Korea will continue uh, the development of its military capabilities and use uh, use the cooperation uh, between U.S. and South Korea as a as opportunities uh, to do this more effectively. Um, uh, in in the New Year speech this year, um, Kim also stated that uh, North Korea will mass produce tactical nuclear warheads and develop um, new ICBMs that will allow Pyongyang to um, have counter strike capability. Mm-hmm. So we got a we got a situation that's that's ripe for shoring up deterrence capabilities on both sides. And so you got exercises um, and, um, you know, uh, strategic assets being deployed onto the Korean Peninsula for the South Korean side. And then you got North Korea that's continuing to ramp up um, its tests. And, 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 and for North Korea um, to, um, to, to develop new ICBM capabilities and have tactical nukes, they need to, they need to continue with this pace uh, of development. Um, and as long as there's no engagement or talks, I don't see this um, um, stopping uh, on the North Korean side. Add to that another important reality, which is the growing tension between great powers. And you've got China, Russia, and the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, that's competing. Uh, and North Korea wants to be a relevant player for China and Russia. Sure. Um, and, and we've seen multiple instances of cooperation between China and Russia in both air and sea with exercises uh, in this region. Uh, But interestingly enough, North Korea wasn't involved in any of these um, activities. Hmm. Um, So in order for North Korea to stay, you know, remain relevant for Beijing and Moscow, um, it has to keep up um, with uh, the changing regional um, geopolitical dynamic and nuclear weapons can be a tool uh, for allowing them to do that as well. So I think there are many sort of contextual factors along with um, sort of um, uh, certain other factors with that, that is particular to North Korea that's sort of lined up, um, that works uh, in favor of uh, more provocations. Okay. Now let's take a closer look at the recent launches. South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff said the two missiles fell into the sea after traveling around 390 and 340 kilometers respectively. These are distances that put a South Korean airbase in the central city of Cheongju and U.S. airbases in Osan and Gunsan within reach. Now, in a rare move, Pyongyang issued a report just about an hour after Monday's firings, right, with the state-run Korean Central News Agency saying that the regime's artillery unit test fired two shots from a 600-millimeter multiple rocket launcher. 
Now, my question to you is, is this possible? And what I mean by that is, does North Korea have the capability to acquire miniaturized tactical nuclear weapons that can be mounted on the 600-millimeter MLRS? And calling the rocket launcher a means of tactical nuclear attack, the state media report claimed that just four rounds fired by the system could destroy an operational enemy airfield. What's your Mm -hmm. take on that? Yeah, so... We need to get a sense of uh, North Korea's intention when it comes to um, these things. And, mm-hmm. and for that, we might want to look closely at North Korea's nuclear doctrine, which is nicely outlined in last year's update uh, to North Korea's law on the nuclear forces policy. So, so this new law um, expands the scope of nuclear use to include um, uh, not only to, you know, th- to include things um, beyond deterrence. So previously, North Korea had intended to use nuclear weapons as, as a means to deter a more powerful adversary who also has the capability to use nuclear weapons, i.e. United States, right? I yes. Mean, that's, a, that's a good example. But, mm-hmm. but with the new law, what North Korea has sort of, you know, has declared in its new law that it passed last year is that they could also use nuclear weapons to fight and, and win wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so what this means is that North Korea doesn't only see nuclear weapons as a weapon of last resort. It, it means that um, it, it, it's going to use it in, in an actual uh, a battle um, situation. If mm-hmm. true, uh, North Korea will need to continue to develop a full arsenal of capabilities uh, to include not only strategic nuclear weapons that that's, you know, uh, nuclear tipped ICBMs, but also uh, tactical uh, nuclear weapons um, that are smaller in yield. Um, and and it needs delivery vehicles for those smaller yield weapons as well. So so what we're seeing is a, is a desire, if not a sign that mm. North Korea has already achieved that desire to develop a capability um, which can deliver tactical nuclear weapons. Um, but you know we can we can debate this whether whether North Korea has achieved this or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but we have reports from late last year that North Korea held an event to commemorate uh, this production of the 600 millimeter um, uh, rocket launchers. Um, so I, I think there's every reason to believe that they either have uh, some kind of delivery capabilities, mm-hmm. but do they have the capability to have miniaturized as you had asked? Um, a working bomb um, that they can, um, um, you know, uh, tip these uh, uh, short-range missiles uh, and also long-range missiles with. And then, frankly, we just don't have um, uh, uh, any indication that they've done it yet. Uh, But clearly, uh, one thing is very clear, they will need to continue to uh, conduct tests uh, in order to get there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, and about the ICBM, on Sunday, North Korea confirmed that it fired a Hwasong-15 ICBM in a sudden launching drill on Saturday. And with regard to that test, Kim Yo-jong, the powerful sister of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, reiterated in a statement that North Korea has re-entry vehicle technology. She also hit back at South Korean experts who questioned the North's mm-hmm. ability to conduct a surprise ICBM launch and its atmospheric re-entry technology. Mm-hmm. Dr. Kim, do you buy this statement of hers? Well, we should take these statements seriously. But we need more corroborating evidence that shows that North Korea has, in fact, 
uh, master this capability. And, and we don't have um, any hard um, proof or confirmation just yet. Hmm. But but I think the intention is very clear, and so we should take these statements very um, you know very seriously. Okay, and North Korea tested an intercontinental ballistic missile with the potential to hit the U.S. mainland and fired two short-range ballistic missiles two days later. The former took aim at the U.S. and the latter South Korea. What do you make of this two-track provocation, if you will? So as I mentioned, you know earlier. Um, North Korea will need a full spectrum of arsenal to use nuclear weapons, as they've um, proclaimed in their new law. Mm-hmm. If they, you know, and and, and um, they need to do this because they're going to use it in an actual battle situation, um, which means that they need the smaller yield weapons for a shorter range. And I think that some of the estimates suggested that uh, you know the flight time for uh, uh, for these um, uh, projectiles. Uh, and the distances uh, suggest that it, you know, it could target uh, American bases uh, in uh, South Korea, yes. uh, namely the able able bases, uh, so uh, aerial bases. So um, I think that um, I, I think beyond that, I, we we do need to um, uh, look at these and think that you know there's a clear message that's uh, that's uh, given here. That increased cooperation between U.S. and South Korea, um, you know, is not is is one of the one of the sort of triggers uh, for these tests and these provocations, and it's a signal that they're you know they're obviously sending to both Seoul and Washington. Okay. And uh, uh, Kim Yo-jong, she's also warned that North Korea will take a very powerful and overwhelming counteraction against any hostile acts against the North. Meanwhile, South Korea and the United States will stage a tabletop exercise, TTX, led by the Allies Deterrence Strategy Committee in Washington on Wednesday under the scenario of use of a nuclear weapon by North Korea. And the Allies are also scheduled to stage joint field exercises for 11 consecutive days in March. While Kim added that the North has no intention to engage with South Korea, but what do you read into Kim's remarks? Also, what could be the powerful and overwhelming, quote-unquote, countermeasures she's referring to? So I think we just need to wait and see, but I would guess more tests of some kind involving, you know, previously tested capabilities and that we haven't um, seen just yet that recently, that is, uh, even though we've had quite a, quite a bit. I think we've had a lot of tests last year, mm-hmm. and I think we're, we're in for another year of many, many tests. And, and you know, obviously they're going to have to develop SLBMs, cruise missile capability. They they hinted last year that they successfully tested hypersonic cruise capability. Mm-hmm. Maybe they need to do some more of that. Um, so, but you know, we're and and earlier this year, I think they did that as well. So, so, so this is these are things that um, uh, I think we we really need to. Um, you know, take note of, but but she's got a lot of things. I mean, I think North Korea has a lot of things that they can do. And uh, in terms of timing, even, it's a little difficult to kind of, you know, guess exactly when that's when all this is going to happen. Okay. And speaking of tests, when do you think North Korea will carry out its seventh nuclear test? And what is Pyongyang waiting for? So, so as I've said, one thing we can be sure of is that we're going to have additional tests. And, uh, or provocations. But um, in the past, you take a look at how North Korea has um, has conducted these tests. They've usually um, timed it with uh, some special occasion or event. 
uh, international events like Biden's visit to Asia in May last year. Um, we had a series of launches. Um, uh, U.S. ROK joint exercises, as you mentioned earlier in your introduction, I think definitely good opportunity. Uh, we have Freedom Shield that's scheduled for mid-March. Um, and so, you know, we're going to see uh, more tests. As far as the nuclear test, the seven nuclear tests, been, uh, you know, it's been elusive. And, and, and most of these tests also follow a schedule of some kind rather than these events. And the focus right now seems to be on the, on the delivery capabilities. But at some point, North Korea will have to conduct the seventh uh, test and, and to continue its development towards miniaturization. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of exactly the timing of that test, I, you know, I couldn't guess. Uh, but I, I think as far as the nuclear test is concerned, you would have to imagine that they have some kind of internal um, development cycle and schedule that they will follow. And, and it's, it's unlikely, you know, even though sometimes it could be also timed with events, but it's probably most likely that they'll do it on their own, you know, in their own schedule and when, they're, when the time is right for them. Okay. And while all this tension uh, is becoming greater and greater over the Korean Peninsula, what incentives could be offered to North Korea to possibly stop these possible provocations? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think the UN administration's done as much as it can when it comes to incentivizing North Korea uh, with, the, with the announcement of the Audacious Initiative. And, and my view, uh, you know, uh, about this is that provocations are par for the course uh, with a totalitarian adversary like North Korea. So I'm more curious as to why we have not had as many as we've had last year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I kind of think about this the other way. So if North Korea is, in fact, serious about building a nuclear, you know, nuclear arsenal with the goal of developing a capability to fight and win wars, hmm. they will need more tests. Mm-hmm. So this might be the new norm. And so until until there's some change within North Korea or Pyongyang wishes to reengage, I think um, tension should be accepted as a given and provocations will continue no matter what the South Korean or or U.S. government can do. Okay. And speaking of the U.S. government, let's take a look at Washington. Uh, Some experts say that the goal of the United States policies towards North Korea is shifting from denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula to non-proliferation. Now, do you think denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula has failed and is now out of the question? I mean, 30 years have passed since North Korea withdrew from the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, right? Yeah. Um, (laughs) Uh, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of evidence um, that uh, if North Korea uh, intended to denuclearize, they should have agreed to do so by now. And and, and we've had many opportunities to make this happen, including, you know, the kinds of uh, engagements that we've had under Presidents Moon and Trump. But, but, you know, if past is any indication, what we've seen is a steady march towards nuclear armament and no desire to abide by international norms uh, on nonproliferation. So until, you know, North Korea shows, that, shows the world that it's going to, you know, change its stance on this matter, this issue, um, I think we have to kind of remain convinced and, and um, you know, um, take a reality pill, so to speak, and, mm. and accept the fact that there's no intention to denuclearize. And, and we need to, there was never an intention to denuclearize, and we need to address this problem. Okay. And, well, a very, very s- serious question that's been going on for quite some time now, 
But uh, following North Korea's latest provocations, Cheong Jin-seok, interim chief of the ruling People Party, I'm sorry, the ruling People Power Party, PPP, called for the country to seriously consider its own nuclear armament. Now, Cheong says calls will grow for South Korea to consider acquiring its own nuclear weapons if North Korea continues its reckless military provocations. Dr. Kim, where do you stand on South Korea's nuclear armament amid North Korea's growing nuclear threats? Yeah, thanks for that question. Mm. And I think we need to talk about this because I don't think we've had a very thorough and dispassionate debate on this issue. And that's what we need now, you know, probably more than ever. Mm-hmm. And policies on matters like this shouldn't be made by just one politician of, of one party. I mean, South Korea needs to formulate a national consensus after weighing all the benefits and the costs. As, as someone, you know, who's thinking about this issue and looking at South Korean public opinion data on this, um, there's almost no discussion of the costs right, right now. And there's only discussion about the benefits um, when, when, you know, you got a sort of, you know, these kinds of uh, political personalities going out there and saying that we need to develop indigenous nuclear capabilities. And so what we need really is a better accounting of the costs and the risks mm. um, in addition to the benefits before deciding to do something that can be in what I think is very going to be very costly for South Korea, right. both its international status and economy. Excellent. Okay, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Kim. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index rose 3.84 points, or 0.16% on Tuesday, to close the day at 2,458.96. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also rose, gaining 4.53 points, or 0.57%, to close at 793.42. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 1.41 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,295.91. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, we have our daily segment, Korea Trending. For this part of the show, we cover some of the hottest topics in South Korea, handpicked by the Korea 24 team. And to bring them to us today is Diane Yu. Hello, Diane. Hello, Jo. It's good to see you. Likewise. All right. So what three stories do you have for us today? Well, today we'll talk about a historic ruling by Seoul's high court regarding health insurance coverage for a same-sex couple. Next, we'll go over why a warning message was sent to Korean travelers from the Korean consulate in Osaka. Third, we'll find out who's showing the potential to become the next speed skating star. All right. Interesting times three. Let's go over the first one. An appellate court has ruled in favor of a same-sex couple who have been married for four years and sought spousal coverage under the state health insurance program. On Tuesday, the Seoul High Court overturned a lower court's ruling in a lawsuit filed by Seo Sung-wook against the National Health Insurance Service, NHIS, who ordered Seo to pay insurance premiums as he, held, uh, as he had a male spouse. I see. Well, then, can you tell us more about the couple and the events that led to the lawsuit? Uh, Seoul got married to his partner, Kim Yong-min, in May 2019. In February 2020, Seoul was registered as dependent of Kim, as Kim's company was providing health insurance 
insurance for its employees. Mm-hmm. At the time, the couple checked with the National Health Insurance Service and found that a person in a de facto marriage can become a dependent of an insurance subscriber. However, the NHIS recognized that the two were a same-sex couple in October 2020, invalidated SO's dependent qualification, and imposed insurance premiums. Uh, and then, in response, SO filed a lawsuit against the service in January 2021. Okay. And what happened in the first trial at the lower court? The health insurance service said, quote, according to the civil law, in order to be recognized as a dependent, you must be a spouse. And if you look at the precedents, the concept of common law partners is premised on the opposite sex between a man and a woman, mm-hmm. unquote. Uh, the plaintiff refuted but. Uh, this by saying that it's a discriminatory act that violates the right to equality. Uh, that's because same-sex couples and heterosexual couples are not fundamentally different in terms of sharing a livelihood and protecting and supporting each other. Right. The lower court sided with the NHIS in the first trial, defining marriage as a union between a man and a woman. It cited a lack of legal grounds to expand the benefit to same-sex couples. However, the appellate court sided with the plaintiff, raising a question to the defendant about what the fundamental difference is between a de facto spouse and a same-sex partner under the National Health Insurance Act. Excellent. Okay, and now let's move on to the next story. So after the Japanese government lifted the travel ban on international tourists last June, a lot of South Koreans traveled to Japan, including a lot of my friends. And mine too. <laughs> yes, so on February 15th, the national, uh, Jap- Japan National Tourism Organization even announced that one in three foreigners who visited the country the previous month was Korean. Hmm. However, for two days starting today, those who are planning to visit the city of Osaka should be cautious. That's according to a safety-related notice from the Consulate General of the Republic of Korea in Osaka. According to the notice, a street demonstration was held today and uh, is scheduled to be held on tomorrow as well on Wednesday from 9 a.m. to noon near the consulate, which is close to a famous tourist spot along the Totumburi River. Okay. And what are these demonstrations about and why are Korean tourists in particular being alerted? Japanese right-wing groups will hold a large-scale rally to mark Takeshima Day. Uh-huh. Takeshima is the Japanese name for Tokdo, South Korea's easternmost islet. Sure. The ownership of the islets is still one of the biggest disputes between the two countries. Mm-hmm. And Takeshima Day is a day that was del- created by a Japanese local government in 2005. On February 22nd, this commemorative event will be held in Shimame Prefecture, where the day originated. And at the same time, a large-scale rally is taking place in front of the consulate in Osaka. It's known that the members of some groups with strong right-wing tendencies who show extreme antipathy to Korea are participating in the event, so extra caution is required for all South Koreans. Okay. And this hate towards Koreans has been occurring more frequently in Japan these days, right? Right. Hate remarks or actions toward Koreans by right-wing forces in Japan are constantly making the headlines. Even crimes stemming from hatred also occur. One notable example is that a Japanese person in their 20s with anti-Korean sentiment deliberately set fire to a village where Korean people resided. Mm. Uh, Other examples include a large Japanese corporation that distributed documents containing contempt for Korea. Mm -hmm. Not to mention incidents at sushi restaurants where Korean customers were deliberately given a large amount of wasabi in their sushi. Mm -hmm. The city of Osaka even enacted an ordinance banning hate speech to prevent slander against certain races and ethnic groups but anti-Korean crimes have not decreased. I see. 
Well, hopefully everything will be okay for the Korean tourists in Osaka. And now on to our last story of the day. I believe this is from the sports world, right? Right. South Korea's two-time Olympic champion speed skater Lee Sang-hwa set some tremendous records before her retirement in 2019. Oh, yes. And now, many around the country are reading about a successor to continue Lee's legacy. And that is Kim Min-sun, who has emerged as the rising star of Korean speed skating. Yes. The 23-year-old skater won three gold medals in the women's speed skating division of the 104th National Winter Sports Festival and was selected as the MVP by reporters, receiving more than 79% of the votes. 79%, wow. So it seems like in the eyes of the voters and myself as mm-hmm. well, she completely dominated the festival. Right. Can you tell us more about her performance? Uh, Kim won gold medals in three events, the women's 500 meters, 1,000 meters, and team pursuit. She won the 500-meter event with a record of 37.90 seconds, beating Lee Sang-hwa's previous record by 0.2 seconds. Uh, Kim also took first place in the 1,000-meter event by, again, surpassing the record set by E in 2013 by 2.08 seconds. Mm -hmm. And in the Team Pursuit game, she won the gold medal with a record of 3 minutes and 3.02 seconds. And winning three events this time was not a stroke of luck. She's on a roll these days, as this year alone, she was able to clinch eight medals at international sports events. Wonderful. So uh, she must be thrilled to be selected as the MVP for the event. What did she say? She said she was surprised to be picked as the MVP for this year's National Winter Sports Festival, but happy and grateful as well. She added that, quote, I think this big award was given to me for winning not only the individual events, but also the team pursuit event. I would like to thank the team and coaches who worked hard together, end quote. And she showed her great enthusiasm for doing her best at the 2000. 2023 ISU World Speed Skating Championships that will take place at Hiramven, Netherlands from March 2nd to 5th. So all eyes are Kim as she takes the baton from her successor, Lee Sang-hwa. Wonderful. Okay, well, I guess that's all the time we have for today's Korea Trending. Thank you so much, Diane. We will see you again next time. See you next time. For this week's Touch Base in Seoul, we are joined by an artist, photographer, and environmentalist from Kazakhstan who is currently based in Bali. Her shots capture humans connecting with nature, especially through the matter of water. She uses her work as a way to inspire appreciation for Earth as well as ourselves. To tell us more about her work, the creative process, and her solo exhibition, which is currently being held here in Seoul, we are very pleased to welcome to the show via video call, Natalie Karpushenko. Hello, Natalie, and thank you for coming on the show. Hello, thank you for inviting me. Excellent. Yeah, I'm very happy. Wonderful. Okay, so uh, let's start here. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of your career. Now, I believe that you brought your first camera when you were 20 years old. What? Was that when you started photography, like professionally, or was there a period before this where you knew that, all right, this is what I want to do. I am a photographer. This is what I do. This is what I will do for the rest of my life. What was that key moment? Yes, actually, it was way earlier. I started shooting when I was maybe 
10 years old. Mm-hmm. So I, my dad gave me the film camera and I was already shooting my classmates, my animals, my cats. So I was just shooting everything around. And at 20, I already started to do it commercially, but I was doing it all my life as a hobby. Yes, and as a matter of fact, uh, since you mentioned the age of 20, according to your website, you began traveling around the world as well at that age. Could you tell us why you decided to travel all around the globe? You know, I was born in Kazakhstan, and of course, I wanted to go as far as I could to just discover new languages, new cultures, new landscapes and I was very interested in that and I think traveling is inspiring in any case and it gives you new perspectives of other people's world and it's kind of letting you live many different lives in different countries so yeah it's it's a lot of inspiration coming from that brilliant Okay, and as a matter of fact, during these travels of yours, uh, your initial travels, and I believe uh, it still holds to this day, but there are three key elements which govern your work, which just go through the uh, the entire body of work of yours, but um, they are nature, and especially the element of water, and of course, humanity. Could you elaborate more on these discoveries? I always loved watching different programs about the nature in my childhood. I dreamt to swim with the whales. I watched and I learned about ocean a lot. And basically our planet, it's not really planet Earth. It's more planet ocean. So what we have more in our life, it's the water in, in our nature. And we are all came from the water. And that's quite inspiring because it's our element and we exist because of water and in our body, the majority is the water. So I think it's just, it's just beginning of the beginning. And yeah, it's, it's natural. And I believe to come back to ourselves, we need to come back to our beginnings. And originally all the life creatures came out from the water. Exactly. You know, it's very uh, interesting that you say you actually use the term hashtag planet ocean, right? I think too many of us who right. live on land are not that much of aware, not that much aware of the fact that indeed water is the most dominant material uh, matter yeah. slash matter when it comes to uh, what composes our wonderful planet. And if you think about it, a couple of years ago, of course, on Netflix, there was that huge documentary by the name of Sea Spiracy, right? And ever since then, I think there are more and more people who are now showing interest in what exactly is happening to our waters and why our waters waters are so important, not just for the waters themselves, but for us on land. In other words, the entire planet. Okay. Now, on that note, photography is one thing. Now, all our listeners... The listeners of our show that is know that I'm actually a cultural critic and I'm also a curator. Uh, what that, what not that many people know is that I'm also the co-founder of Sea Shepherd Korea. And if there's anyone out there who's not familiar with that term, Sea Shepherd is, of course, the Global Marine Ecosystem Conservation Society. I am the co-founder of the Korean branch of that society. And the reason why I'm mentioning all this is because 
Photography as an art is challenging enough, but to exercise that underwater with wild marine animals, I think that takes the challenge to a whole nother level, right? So how, what are the considerations, what are the variables that you're looking at, you're paying attention to a little bit uh, keener when it comes to shooting your underwater shots? This is indeed very difficult shoot to plan. You cannot plan, okay, at that, at that light, the whale gonna go from the right side, I put the person from the left side and capture the perfect moment. Mm -hmm. Of course not, because there's so many different things that have to come together that all this to happen, it's kind of the mostly the luck, I would say. And you need to do it maybe 50 times. And one time you will be lucky enough to capture it. So you, you will have the connection with the whale. The water clarity would be perfect. The light would be nice. Uh, the camera would work. You know, sometimes you underwater cameras, they're a bit like with housing. Sometimes you press the button and they don't work. Also it happens or focus doesn't work. You know, so many things should come together to really capture the moment. I think only people who are being underwater and shooting underwater that can understand the difficulty, but it's the challenge. And that's why I want to do it more and more because it's not that simple, right? And for me, uh, I'm not that interested to capture just a whale itself, just the wild animals. I I'm more fascinated by the connection between a human and a whale because the connection is something what is already going on and you just capturing it. It's the magic that's already happening there and, and you kind of like, okay, wow, this is happening. I captured this moment. So to me, this is magical and this is something unique and that's, you cannot fake it, you know, it's just there. Exactly. You know, it's, uh, and on that note, I mean, because if you think about it, even taking photography on land can be challenging enough. For example, you know, poor weather conditions or there's always some kind, maybe some stranger who's being a little bit too nosy, if you will, and these kind of situations. Yeah. But to deal with these kind of uncertainties underwater, I think, is just a whole other challenge. Uh, would it be possible? Yeah. I'm sorry. Please go ahead. I also, I shoot mostly nude, so also people must be feeling shy and cold and any other kind of discomfort. So it's plus, 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 plus many things. Challenge for everybody in this case, I think. I had the absolute pleasure of actually appreciating your work here at your show. Uh, it opened here in Seoul at a venue called Ground Sea Sauce Hongsu. Uh, it opened uh, at the end of last year, December 23rd, to be a little bit more exact. Uh, a huge congrats on that one. And um, it's going to run through May 7th this year. Could you tell us more about this particular show? And question number two on that would be, why did you decide to display your work here in this part of the world? Um, thank you so much. Yes, I'm actually very happy how it all came to reality how it happened and how big is it how massive is it i was very surprised when i came to seoul and i entered my own exhibition i i had a full body of goosebumps and how the team worked is it's just something something amazing and to be honest why i choose korea i never did 
I never did. The producers, they texted me that they wanted to to do this exhibition. And I was at the moment in the boat somewhere far in Papua, Rajampat. And I was like reading this message uh, one year ago. And I was absolutely happy because that was my biggest dream. And to think about city as so, I was thinking that it's exactly the city that needed this kind of exhibition and which was confirmed by the visitors because many of the visitors uh, in Seoul came to me and said, okay, this exhibition brought me peace and that's what we need in the big cities. And I, I think it's everything just came aligned at that moment. And yeah, I... I'm happy that in such a cities we can um, build a little bit uh, of nature in the museum and give people the feeling of swimming with the whales. Because as you notice, the exhibition hall was created that way that it takes you underwater with the sound, with the light. The floor is on the exhibition. It also looks like water with the reflection. So... Yeah, I I think they did a very great job and uh, I'm pretty, pretty happy with it. Lovely, lovely. You know, and that's something that I actually didn't think about that much in detail. Now everything makes so much more sense after having listened to what you just said about the whole entire mise-en-scene of the exhibition hall, if you will. Yeah, it kind of actually felt like I'm exploring underwater and, you know, engaging with all these different creatures and the human activities, the the, the possibilities of, of far better uh, human-animal relationships than the one we've uh, cultivated so far. Okay, so you just said that you're very, very pleased to do this show here in Korea, but of course I have a very good feeling, and especially after this show, that there will be many other places across the globe where they would just love to have you over and do a show similar to what's happening right here in Seoul. But um, on that note, what are your plans for the rest of this year? What are your plans for the future? If you can share any information regarding that with us, please do so. Of course. Yeah, I I never can stop. I think I want to just film and create more and more future exhibitions. For now, my plan to go swim with the whales and film some more with the whales because during the COVID I could not really do it and now everything is reopened, Tonga is reopening so I'm gonna run a few trips in Tonga to swim with the whales which actually many people can also join me Uh, I'm also just a whale guide and I plan to film in Mauritius and I'm going to Japan soon so I'm I'm traveling a lot and planning future bigger projects. As as you know, I achieved something. I came to my own exhibition. I was like, okay, I did something. I can do even better. I cannot really stop. I need to do more and more and more. And yes, uh, I, I want to move more into video production at the moment. I want to do short films because I realized that with the video, maybe you've seen my short video, but we can share with the video more with the music and moving images can tell more stories than photographs. I think that's actually really, yes, that's actually, sure, that's actually really brilliant. 
and plus the fact that you know there's a certain demographic which doesn't necessarily go to uh, art exhibitions too often but do uh, frequent movie theaters so for that demographic I think um, presenting a film which discusses uh, this a really important subject matter would be a phenomenal thing to do and I'd be really uh, be expect- expecting to um, appreciate your uh, film as well Okay, well, um, I think that's all the time we have for this interview. And Natalie, thank you so much for your precious time. I believe that currently you just, uh, we had this conversation while you are in Geneva. I'm, I'm assuming that you're there for some really important things to do. So I wish you nothing the best with that and everything else. And hopefully we'll be able to once again touch base here in Seoul next time. Yes, thank you so much for inviting. I, I'm very happy to, to speak with you. this morning and yeah i i hope to see you uh on my exhibition i'll maybe come back in may excellent to seoul all right great that was the globally acclaimed visual artist and environmentalist natalie karpushenko did you enjoy this segment you can discover more segments like this throughout the week on korea 24 On Monday, we bring you news from the world of sports around the peninsula. Then on Tuesday, notable guests from various fields join us and give us insight into their lives and work. Are you a fan of books? Then tune in on Wednesday for Korea Book Club, where our book critic helps us unpack works by Korean authors or written on Korea. Go on an adventure with us every Thursday as we take a look at Korea's hidden gems with Explore Korea. And on Friday, listen to what our film critics have to say about the latest movie releases from both home and abroad. We have all that you need, all in one place, on Korea 24. Welcome back to Korea 24. For the last part of the show, we have our daily segment, Morning Edition Preview, where we'll take a look at some of the biggest stories from tomorrow's newspapers. The Korea Times and the Korea Herald have been kind enough to give us a preview of their editions for tomorrow, so we are very grateful for that. And we are joined in the studio by our staff editor at KBS's English service, Richard Larkin. Richard, it's good to see you again. Hello, good to see you too. Great. Now, what's the first article you have chosen? First is Saul Lapham's article in the Entertainment and Arts section of the Korea Times. It's about a special exhibition that was held to show Korea's relationship with videotapes. Mm-hmm. As someone who grew up watching movies on VHS tapes, looking at the pictures in the article and reading about the history of the tapes felt very nostalgic for me. And that's why I chose it. Wow, it really sounds like my kind of an exhibition as well. <laughs> and I think I've just revealed which age group I belong <laughs> to. But uh, Richard, tell us more about this wonderful exhibition. It was called To Rewind is Divine mm-hmm. and was held for a few weeks at the Asia Culture Center. The special exhibition displayed a collection of videotapes and film memorabilia. Hmm. I was very shocked when I found out how many items were actually on display. Okay. 27,000 wow. VHS tapes could be seen. The article says that the number is equivalent to 10 video rental shops. All right. As I mentioned before, the exhibition took a look at the country's relationship with video, and nostalgia was a key theme. Of course. Visitors could see that because a statement near the entrance explained that using video as an exhibit material reveals the materiality that is difficult to feel in modern times. Wow, sounds nice. And where did the tapes come from? Well, the article explains that the items came from Gwangju-based film buff Joe Dae-young. 
who hmm. has a collection of about 50,000 tapes. <laughs> okay. Initially, when video stores started to close down, close down, he began his collection because he felt sorry for the disappearance of videotapes. Uh-huh. The article goes into so much more detail about Korea's fading videotape legacy, so check it out. Wonderful. All right, and what is the next story you have for us? Well, the National Theatre Company will kick off its 2023 season in March, and Hwan Dong-hee's article in the culture section of the Korea Herald gives us all the details about the very first play. Okay. It's called Manson, The Yearning of a Fisherman, and it will run from March 16th to April 9th. And it sounds quite interesting. It does sound quite interesting. So can you t- walk us through what the play is about? Sure. It's set in a small village on Korea's southern coast and follows a fisherman named Gomchi, who vows to catch a boat full of fish despite many obstacles in the way. The play was selected through a playwriting competition in 1964 and got its premiere in the same year. It was very popular, winning the first Korean Theatre and Film Arts Awards, and it was adapted into a highly successful film. Hmm. What stands out to me is that during the conclusion of the play, five tons of rain will sweep across the stage. Wow, okay. So quite a state. Yes, that does sound exciting. But and, uh, I have to ask you this because of the nature of our show, obviously, mm-hmm. but is this play only in Korean? It is in Korean, but for English speakers, there are subtitles on Thursdays and Sundays. Great. And from March 30th to April 1st, there will be audio commentary, Korean sign language, and Korean subtitles. So yeah, tickets can be found on the National Theatre Company's website and on Interpark. Lovely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Richard. Thank you. Okay. And this brings us to the end of today's edition of Korea 24. We'll bring you the latest on Korea tomorrow as well. Just a reminder, you can always listen to our show on our apps, KBS Kong, KBS World Radio, and KBS World Radio on air at 7.10 p.m. Korea Standard Time every weekday. Shortwave listeners can check the broadcast schedule on the KBS World Radio website to find out when Korea 24 is played in your region. You can also listen to our show via Naver Audio Clip. Go to audioclip.naver.com, search for Korea 24, and then you can find all of our previous shows. I'm your host, Anjehu. Thank you and goodbye. KBS World Radio offers all you need to know on Korea through its various programs. Tune in to One Fine Day with Lena Park and join the K-pop diva for two fine hours every weekday. Are you into the latest K-pop tracks? Then K-pop Connection is your fix. Brian Ju brings you the best of K-pop and K-culture. On Korea 24, host Kwon Jang-ho helps listeners digest all the biggest stories coming out of South Korea. Keep up with what's happening on the peninsula by listening to Korea 24. Learn about Korean folktales on Mondays with global audiobook Once Upon a Time in Korea. If you're a bookworm, don't miss Books on Demand, a program that introduces Korean literature to the global audience every Tuesday. Our Wednesday program, Korea Today and Tomorrow, provides news on the latest diplomatic developments in and around the Korean peninsula. Want to go deeper than K-pop? Sounds of Korea takes a closer look at various traditional music every Thursday. KBS World Radio is your go-to channel for all things Korea. Tune in!
Yeah, yeah. Huh. You ready? Let's go. 즐거움이 활짝 새로움이 가득 찬. 